It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. In the 1980s, brothers Lorne and Lawrence Blair were shooting a documentary for PBS in Java, Indonesia. They were thrilled to finally capture a subject they'd been chasing a long time. It wasn't an exotic animal or a reclusive indigenous tribe. It was an acupuncturist. The Blair brothers called him Dynamo Jack. Dynamo Jack was not a typical acupuncturist. He stuck needles in his patients, but the needles weren't the treatment. They were just a conduit for electricity. According to local rumor, he was able to pass electricity through his body into his patients. The electric current allegedly healed all kinds of physical and mental dysfunctions, from infections to depression. The documentary team experienced Dynamo Jack's extraordinary skill firsthand. Their sound recordist placed her hand on the acupuncturist's abdomen, but had to withdraw it suddenly. She'd experienced what felt like a very strong static shock. But Dynamo Jack saved his most impressive ability for last. He led the documentary team outside where he crumpled up a piece of newspaper. He dropped down to one knee, placed a ball of newspaper in front of him, and hovered his hand just above it. Dynamo Jack bowed his head, moving into a state of deep concentration. Still inches from the newspaper, his hand shook from exertion. And then, smoke started seeping through his fingers. When Dynamo Jack retracted his hand, the ball of newspaper was on fire. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. This is our final episode on spontaneous human combustion, a phenomenon where ordinary people suddenly erupt into flames. Many victims, if they are not rescued, burn away completely. But strangely, their surroundings are often left intact. 
Last week, we looked into some historical accounts of the phenomenon, from the Bible to the fiction of Charles Dickens. Then we dove into four suspected cases of spontaneous combustion in the modern age. This week, we'll examine a variety of theories that could explain how a person might ignite instantaneously without warning. Then, we'll take a look at the science behind how a fire can burn so intensely while leaving flammable items nearby intact. In order for a fire to qualify as spontaneous human combustion, it has to meet three criteria. The blaze must have no clear source of ignition, burn at a high temperature with no accelerant, and be mysteriously contained. There are several theories that explain the why behind each one of the elements of spontaneous human combustion. But first, if there's no ignition source, how might these fires start? In order for a fire to ignite, oxygen must be present and a fuel must be at its ignition temperature. Different materials have different ignition temperatures. Human body fat, for example, needs to reach a temperature of 482 degrees Fahrenheit to catch fire. Some very dangerous fuels will ignite at room temperature. One type of these fuels, phosphate hydrides, might be manufactured in our digestive tract. Don't panic. Natural human production of phosphorus hydrides requires very specific and unlikely circumstances. Dr. Sidney Alford, a British explosives expert, has theorized that the human gut would only produce phosphorus hydrides after the ingestion of a large amount of phosphorus-heavy food, like raw eggs. Phosphorus hydrides ignite into flames the moment it comes into contact with oxygen. If a human were to excrete that gas through either end of the digestive tract, it would generate sudden, immediate flames. At that point, the phosphorus hydride could potentially ignite methane gases still inside the body. This could account for the perplexing flame pattern investigators find when performing a post-mortem examination of possible victims of spontaneous human combustion. The fires often appear to burn the inside of the body before the outside. This theory fits particularly well with the story of Jeannie Safin, the 61-year-old disabled woman whose father and brother-in-law witnessed her breathing fire like a dragon. If Jeannie excreted phosphorus hydrides out of her mouth, it would have created the fire-breathing effect her family observed. However, there has never been a documented case of a human digestive tract generating phosphorus hydrides. It's extremely unlikely that a human would even be able to ingest enough phosphorus to make it happen. Phosphorus hydrides would be the clearest chemical explanation behind the internal ignition required for spontaneous human combustion. But it's truly theoretical. Even bodybuilders like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who might consume raw eggs as part of their diet, haven't been found to have phosphorus hydride inside their gut. There is, however, another popular, more spiritual explanation, the life force, also known as prana or chi. Larry Arnold, author of A Blaze, a book about spontaneous human combustion, defines chi as an energy quasi-electric in nature that makes us an animate living organism. 
Dynamo Jack claimed that his ability to generate an electrical shock or even fire with his body was the result of harnessing the power of his chi. This conscious control of his body's energy was only possible after years of intense meditation. Even if we take Dynamo Jack at his word, that leaves us with another question. Could she generate fire without conscious thought? Author Larry Arnold has found that Eastern spiritual leaders believe that unbalanced energy can cause the sensation of unbearable internal heat. Arnold also believes that if an individual left their prana continuously unbalanced or blocked for an extended period, it could result in spontaneous combustion. Arnold points out that our brain's physiology supports the conclusions of Eastern spiritual leaders. The body temperature is regulated by a gland called the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is also the seat of emotions. Many of spontaneous human combustion victims are depressed or morose. They lack the desire to live, or they're hot under the collar. Perhaps when our emotions become too intensely negative, our hypothalamus becomes overwhelmed. It responds by increasing the body temperature to a lethal degree. This theory is relevant to two of the spontaneous human combustion victims from the previous episode. First, consider Mrs. Helen Conway, the 51-year-old grandmother who burned to death in her sitting room in only 20 minutes. Bearing in mind the perplexing speed of the lethal fire, Larry Arnold believes that the ignition of Mrs. Conway's fire could have originated from a specific type of chi dysfunction. It's a phenomenon that he calls the human Hiroshima effect. Arnold describes the process that he believes occurs inside our bodies. He says, at a subatomic level in the human body, a chain reaction begins to unleash itself. It radiates outward to the physical structure. In doing so, the tremendous amount of energy released literally vaporizes the moisture content of the human body. These people become their own self-immolators, their own crematorium. We don't know much about Mrs. Conway's emotional state at the time of her death. However, the unnatural speed of her fire fits in with a chemical reaction like the human Hiroshima effect. While we can only theorize about Mrs. Conway's state of mind when she passed away, we know for a fact that Jeannie Safin was grieving her mother at the time of her death. For Jeannie, the Chi ignition theory is even more applicable. Jeannie's brother-in-law, Don Carroll, thinks her sorrow over her mother played a part in her spontaneous combustion. He told the producers of A&E's The Unexplained, Jeannie was always with her mother. Shortly after her mother died, this happened to Jean. I believe it could be psychic suicide. Jeannie brought it on herself because she missed her mom. Jeannie's family and others whose loved ones suddenly went up in flames staunchly believe that spontaneous human combustion is responsible for their deaths. However, the internal ignition required for spontaneous combustion is easily brushed aside by many skeptics. Because sometimes external ignition is present, it's just hard to identify. 
Many common external ignition sources, like a cigarette or a match, will be burned away in the ensuing fire. By the time the victim is discovered, it's no longer possible to determine the initial source because it's been reduced to ash along with the victim. But there's another outside ignition theory that doesn't totally dampen the freakishness behind spontaneous human combustion. Under the right circumstances, a simple static shock could ignite a spontaneous fire. A standard static shock is about 20,000 volts, enough to ignite a flammable material, but not enough to make human tissue go up in flames. Consider the case of 17-year-old Jacqueline Fitzsimon, the culinary student who suddenly caught fire after a final exam. Some witnesses say that Jacqueline applied hairspray a few minutes before her combustion event. Just before she noticed the flame, she was walking down a crowded stairwell. A static shock generated by the friction of brushing past her classmate's clothes could have been enough to ignite a hairspray-soaked material like her shirt or her ponytail. Although the ignition theories leave plenty of room for skeptics, there are multiple viable theories for internal sudden ignition. The first criterion for spontaneous human combustion can theoretically be met. It's unlikely, but it's possible. But will the next benchmark for spontaneous combustion, intense, high-temperature fire, stand up to the same scrutiny? Coming up, how a human body could fuel a fire that burns at over 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Now back to the story. A variety of theories could explain how the sudden fires of spontaneous human combustion begin. None of them are airtight, but they are possible. Now, the second requirement for spontaneous human combustion is an extreme high-temperature blaze. In suspected cases, most of the victim's body is completely obliterated. The reduction of the body to ashes typically indicates a powerful fuel source that allows the fire to burn at a very high temperature. However, for something to be considered spontaneous combustion, no accelerant can be present. No gasoline, kerosene, butane, nothing. And yet, an inordinate amount of fuel would be required to burn the human body at a temperature that would completely obliterate it. The human body is about 60% water. In other words, our chemical composition makes for terrible kindling. It naturally wants to resist fire. If you've ever cooked raw meat on a grill, you know that flames tend to char the meat, not literally catch it on fire. Flames emanating from inside the body, where moisture is concentrated, would have an even harder time finding a foothold. If catching flesh on fire is difficult, how could it be possible for a body to fuel a combustion event that leaves a torso burnt completely into ash, like Mrs. Conway or Mrs. Oxkey's bodies were discovered? Maybe they were somehow unique. Something in their chemical makeup was just divergent enough to allow the flames to tear through their bodies. Or maybe they weren't different at all. Maybe all of us are firebombs just waiting to explode. While the majority of our bodies are composed of non-flammable materials, 
During digestion, the human body produces two flammable gases, hydrogen and methane. While they are flammable, they are not a viable fuel source. If our digestive gases interact with an ignition source, they are more likely to explode than generate flames. In the highly improbable event that the gases were slowly raised to the proper ignition temperature, they could ignite. But even then, methane and hydrogen are not present in large enough quantities to be feasible fuel sources themselves. They could, however, potentially ignite another combustible substance in the human body, fat. Fatty human tissue is one of the most popular fuel source theories because of how it reacts during combustion. Although our fat must reach a very high temperature, about 480 degrees Fahrenheit to burn, it doesn't immediately evaporate. It melts. If a cloth wick is placed in this liquefied fat, it will continue burning at room temperature. As gravity pulls liquid fat onto other, less flammable tissue, the liquid fat will encourage those tissues to ignite. This process was first described by British coroner Gavin Thurston in 1961. He called the phenomenon the wick effect. Think of the human body as candle wax and the clothes as a wick. Together, they create a traditional candle turned inside out. The clothes are an easy source of ignition. And once they're ablaze, the human body, particularly body fat, provides the fuel to keep the fire going. Bone marrow also contains fat, which could explain the complete decimation of bones in a human combustion scenario. Thurston recreated the wick effect by wrapping fatty tissue in gauze, then lighting the gauze on fire. The heat of the fire was sufficient to melt the fat and provide steady combustion, just like a candle. BBC Newsnight repeated Thurston's experiment for a primetime British audience in 1986. The wick effect directly applies to both Mrs. Oxkey and Mrs. Conway, two victims discovered after their torsos were completely burned. Mrs. Oxkey was reportedly overweight and probably carrying additional body fat that would have made the wick effect particularly effective. While we don't know exactly what either woman was wearing at the time of their death, we do know that they both died in the 1960s. At the time, artificial polyblend fabrics were fashionable. They were also flammable. It's also worth noting that much of the furniture constructed in that time period used petroleum-based foam for the cushions, another flammable substance. Both women were sitting in chairs when they perished. If either of the women's clothing or chairs ignited, even for a relatively short time, the heat could have been enough to melt their body fat and begin the process of the wick effect. The wick effect has been cited as a viable fuel source theory to explain spontaneous combustion since Thurston first presented it in 1961. But... There's a logical problem with its follow-through. Clothing, the essential flammable element of the wick effect, burns more quickly than human fat. Without the heat generated by the flaming clothes, the burning of the fat would likely stall out before an entire body was consumed. 
Although Mrs. Conway's body was obliterated in about 20 minutes, she is the very odd exception. Investigators speculate that Mrs. Oxkey was likely burning for 12 hours or more based on the complete decimation of her body. A polyester garment would burn through in a matter of minutes. When a British television program called Inside Spontaneous Human Combustion attempted to recreate the wick effect, they managed to slow the rapid combustion of clothing by covering their test victim with several blankets on a bed. The layers kept the fire insulated and burning steadily for several hours. However, we know that Mrs. Conway and Mrs. Oxkey were both in chairs at the time of their deaths. It's unlikely that their entire bodies were covered with multiple layers of clothing or blankets. If the wick effect doesn't provide an irrefutable explanation, there must be another type of propellant. Perhaps what fuels spontaneous combustion doesn't naturally occur in our bodies. In the 19th century, spontaneous human combustion was linked to alcoholics. Since alcohol is a known accelerant, it made logical sense that someone with a lot of booze in their system could suddenly burst into flames. Alcoholism is a statistical commonality among suspected spontaneous combustion victims. Among the cases we examined, Mrs. Oxkey had a known problem with alcohol and was suspected to be drinking at the time of her death. This theory appeals to common sense and has remained a popular explanation for spontaneous combustion well into modern times. But experts conclusively debunked it all the way back in the mid-19th century. German scientist Eustace von Liebig demonstrated in his lab that live and deceased rats injected with, or even soaked in, ethanol still wouldn't burn the way spontaneous combustion victims did. Research biologist Brian J. Ford repeated a version of Liebig's experiment in 2012. He soaked pork belly in alcohol for a week, then wrapped it in gauze. Just as in Liebig's tests, the flesh of the pork belly failed to ignite. Alcohol-soaked flesh doesn't ignite because alcohol burns at a range of temperatures far below the 480 degrees Fahrenheit required to ignite a human body. Even if an excessive amount of alcohol in the bloodstream somehow ignited, it wouldn't burn hot enough to reduce flesh and bones to ashes. But during his experiments, Ford noticed another problem. Alcohol, even in the most habitual alcoholics, is never at a high enough concentration in human tissues to sustain a lethal fire. That issue led him in a new direction. What other flammable compounds could appear in our bodies in high amounts? That question brought forward to acetone. Acetone is a familiar household solvent that is often used to remove nail polish, but it's also a natural byproduct of our body's metabolic processes. Acetone levels spike in the body when cells are in a starvation state, meaning fat stores are being burned for energy. Our cells become starved after hard exercise, but the state can become chronic due to illnesses and disorders, including alcoholism and diabetes. To test his theory, Ford soaked several pounds of pork belly in acetone. Then he fabricated the meat into a human shape 
a head, torso, and limbs. The entire model was wrapped in gauze, meant to simulate clothing. This time, the model's flesh caught fire and burned steadily. After about 30 minutes, the torso had been reduced to ash. Brian J. Ford was one of the first scientists in modern history who had been able to recreate the outcome of spontaneous human combustion in a lab. Ford's discovery is particularly relevant to Mrs. Oxkey's case because she was both an alcoholic and a diabetic. Both of these diseases made her cells more likely to exist in a starvation state, which would result in a buildup of acetone. Ford's acetone theory also explains why investigators don't discover the presence of an accelerant on the remains of the victims. The acetone in question is infused inside the flesh rather than introduced to its surface. Because the accelerant is inside the body, it is completely burned away by the time a post-mortem exam can be performed. Although Ford's discovery explains one of the most perplexing features of spontaneous combustion, he doesn't believe in the phenomenon himself. Ford isn't warning everyone predisposed to acetone buildup that they're in imminent danger of bursting into flame. But he does think acetone-heavy individuals should avoid obvious ignition sources like flammable fabrics and cigarettes. So add suddenly erupting into flames to the list of reasons a person should consider giving up smoking. Although Ford remains skeptical, there are theories that explain the sudden ignition and the intense blaze that are the hallmarks of spontaneous human combustion. The phenomenon remains improbable but not yet debunked. The final element to pass scrutiny is also the most bizarre. Spontaneous combustion fires burn hot enough to reduce their victims to ash, but they never spread any further. Sometimes they even leave the victim's limbs behind. Coming up, how and why spontaneous combustion fires only damage their victims. Now, back to the story. Many of the theories about what fuels the bodily fires of spontaneous human combustion, including the popular theory that high blood alcohol content is to blame, have been debunked. But the buildup of acetone in the body gives a clear explanation for how spontaneous combustion fires could burn hot enough to completely obliterate a victim's body. But when the blaze is intense enough to turn bones into ash, why doesn't the fire ever spread from the victim's body into their surroundings? Although the wick effect is not a perfect explanation for what fuels the intense blaze of spontaneous combustion, it does provide an explanation for why the fires are so oddly contained. Fire, like many natural processes, follows the path of least resistance. It will consume the most easily accessible fuel source first. Because human fat is readily available, the fire focuses there, leaving other things nearby undamaged. The leaner parts of the body, like the legs, are not effective fuel and are therefore less likely to burn. Fire and explosion analyst Patrick Kennedy used this theory to explain why Mrs. Conway's torso burned down to the bone but her legs were relatively unscathed. 
When Mrs. Conway's torso ignited, her legs were outside the zone of the burning liquid fat that rapidly consumed her. Analysis of photos taken at the scene provide an additional explanation to Kennedy's theory. Investigators observed fire plumes, long black streaks, at two different levels on the wall behind Mrs. Conway's burned chair. The plumes were of similar intensity, but at two different heights. This suggested that at some point, the fire source suddenly moved up or down. Investigators concluded that the fire burned through the back of Mrs. Conway's chair while her torso was still actively burning. The back of the chair fell toward the wall behind it, bringing the flaming torso with it. The fire continued to burn, but was then too far away to ignite the legs. The chair breakage helped save Kennedy's analysis. Without it, the application of the wick effect to Mrs. Conway's case doesn't make sense. If Mrs. Conway was sitting upright, intact, her legs should have been affected. Sure, the bottom of a candle burns last, but it does still burn. What Kennedy is suggesting is that the candle, Mrs. Conway, essentially broke because of the behavior of human fat compared to wax, and she tore through the chair. It's all pretty gruesome, but fat works against containment. Part of the wick effect is the movement of liquid fat onto other flammable parts of the body and igniting those. But there's no reason for the liquid fat to stop at the victim's body. It would naturally drop onto the floor or whatever was beneath the ignited area. Fat also behaves unpredictably when it boils. Imagine cooking with oil. It pops and splatters on nearby surfaces as the temperature increases. This seems like a natural way to spread a fire fueled by fat, but no splatter-like features have been observed at the scenes of suspected spontaneous combustion events. The Wick theory fails to explain containment. But applying a similar line of logic to the acetone fuel theory may provide a more feasible explanation. When research biologist Brian J. Ford played out his acetone theory by lighting a human model made out of pork belly on fire, he not only observed that the torso burned completely, he also observed that only the torso of his model burned. Ford concluded from this experiment that victims like Mrs. Conway and Mrs. Oxke leave their legs behind because those limbs tend not to hold much fat, and therefore those cells wouldn't contain a heavy concentration of acetone. This theory tracks better than the wick effect because acetone doesn't splatter or liquefy the way fat does, which would naturally spread the flames. Because the accelerant is physically distributed inside human cells, it's not easily spreadable to other surfaces. Acetone also evaporates as it burns. When it is fully consumed, the fire is left unable to sustain itself without an equally obliging fuel source available. Although acetone provides some clarification on how spontaneous combustion fires remain contained, there's another important factor to consider related to the science behind fire. Fire needs oxygen to sustain itself, and an intense blaze scorching a human body would consume a huge amount of oxygen. 
If spontaneous combustion occurs in a relatively well-insulated area, a house with closed doors and windows, for example, it's possible that consuming the readily available fuel would use up most of the oxygen, forcing the fire to dwindle out before it can spread to another fuel source. Mrs. Oxkey was in her home alone at night when she died. It's likely that she secured the house before settling in. If that's the case, the limited oxygen could have had a part in preventing the fire that killed her from burning her entire house down. For Mrs. Conway, oxygenation is significant in a slightly different way. A fire in an open space radiates heat and energy in all directions. But Mrs. Conway was seated in a corner, limiting the fire's radius. Limited by a corner, the fire had a more limited supply of oxygen and could have gone out more quickly. In addition, the door to Mrs. Conway's room was closed and it was hot when firefighters arrived. The heat is indicative of good insulation inside. The corner also would have prevented the heat from the fire from spreading out, making it more concentrated. That could have contributed to the baffling rapidity of the fire that killed Mrs. Conway in only 20 minutes. Although several popular theories about the cause and mechanics behind spontaneous human combustion have since been debunked, a few theories remain plausible. For ignition, unbalanced chi may seem far-fetched, but Dynamo Jack's documented abilities may prove that the human body is capable of producing fire. In our research, we found no concrete evidence that would disprove his talents. That said, aside from the Blair Brothers documentary, documentation is hard to come by. In his lifetime, Dynamo Jack worked hard to avoid reporters and cameras. Allegedly, he appreciated privacy because he accessed his powers through meditation. But we should also acknowledge another possibility. He dodged the press because he was afraid of being exposed as a fraud. With all that in mind, we're going to move forward accepting that she might be a possible source of ignition. When considering fuel and containment, Brian J. Ford's acetone theory holds up best. Acetone builds up naturally in some people, and its flammable effects have been recreated in a lab. With these two theories in mind, perhaps the peculiar fire deaths in the previous episode can now be explained. First, Mrs. Beatrice Oxkey. There's no way to know for certain what ignited Mrs. Oxkey's fire, but since she was a smoker with a history of burning herself with dropped cigarettes, it's hard to ignore this as a possible ignition source. If outside ignition occurred, Mrs. Oxkey is ruled out as a case of spontaneous human combustion. Next, consider Mrs. Helen Conway. Again, it's impossible to pinpoint Mrs. Conway's ignition source. Like Mrs. Oxkey, Mrs. Conway was known to be a careless smoker, and her granddaughter Stephanie delivered a matchbook to Mrs. Conway minutes before her death. It's not impossible that Mrs. Conway's fire started due to one of the internal methods discussed, but Stephanie's testimony about the matchbook is difficult to ignore. Most likely, Mrs. Conway is not a case of spontaneous human combustion, but is the victim of a bizarre acetone-fueled fire. 
The incredible speed of Mrs. Conway's fire can be attributed to the heat-concentrating effects of the corner she was sitting in. Mrs. Conway's house was made of stone. Perhaps the rocks heated up and reflected the heat back onto Mrs. Conway, creating an oven-like effect. Jacqueline Fitzsimon is another case that's easily debunked. There were multiple outside ignition sources near Jacqueline before she went up in flames. She had been near a hot oven for several minutes before the combustion event, and she's also a good case for a static shock ignition. Assuming one of those outside sources was responsible for Jacqueline's fire, she's not a victim of spontaneous human combustion. But lastly, Jeannie Safin is one of the most perplexing cases. There's no obvious source of outside ignition. Of all the examples explored last week, Jeannie is the best candidate to have caught fire due to unbalanced or blocked chi. She was born with mental and physical disabilities, which undoubtedly introduced immeasurable stress and both physical and mental pain to her daily life. In addition, Jeannie had just lost her most dedicated companion and caretaker, her mother. If we accept a chi disturbance as a viable ignition source, then Jeannie could be a bona fide case of spontaneous human combustion. As far as fuel goes, we don't know anything about Jeannie's diet or if she had habits that would have predisposed her to high acetone levels. However, Jeannie's brother-in-law, Don, reported that he had a hard time using water to extinguish flames emanating from her midriff. Fires fueled by flammable digestive gases or acetone would be difficult to put out with water. Don and Jeannie's father, John, both reported seeing flames coming from Jeannie's mouth. That's another place on her body where flammable digestive gases could be present. Based on the theories laid out, spontaneous human combustion could occur, but only under extremely specific and rare circumstances. There is no evidence of any single event that results in internal ignition and an intense contained blaze. The circumstances necessary for spontaneous combustion are a diet unnaturally heavy in phosphorus or a highly unbalanced chi. Then, the cells inside the body must be in a starvation state to generate high levels of acetone and or flammable digestive gases must be present in high amounts. Those conditions aren't necessarily related. They're coincidental, not causal. This could account for the rarity of the phenomenon. Spontaneous human combustion is bizarre. It's rare. It's unlikely. But it has not been disproven. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back Tuesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Unexplained Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. 
See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Mike Ramos, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Baden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Hannah McIntosh, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.